obvious sound. There's a huge edge to be gained by looking into things like this. With the hype, it's only going one way. He's still too cheap. How can you not love fantasy football? Welcome back into the Fantasy Sanctuary. This is part three of a three-part series looking back at 2022's Best Ball ADP. We've gone through the good, bad of rounds one through 12. Tonight, I'm joined by Davis Peng, writer for Stochastic and Fantasy Six Pack. Davis is one of the brightest minds around when it comes to best ball. I speak to him a lot about everything from players to different draft strategies, and I never come away from those conversations feeling like I haven't learned something. Davis, how are you doing? Doing great, man. I'm happy to be on the show. You know, after I watched the first two, and I have a, a lot to follow up again, so I'm hoping that I can keep this uh, integrity of the show at the peak levels right now. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. No no reason I'd have you on apart from the fact you're amazing when it comes to best ball. So let's get it. Uh, round 13, we've got Jacoby Myers, KJ Osborne, Nico, Nico Collins, Isaiah Spiller, Tyler Algier, Khalil Herbert, Kenny Galladay, James Winston, Christian Watson, Hunter Henry, KJ Hamler, and Mike Gesicki. Looking back at it, this is a really nice round. I mean, there's multiple players there who've got green advance rates. You know, obviously there's some in the red, which aren't good. And then there's... Uh, Nico Collins, right at average. So there were plenty of players here that did help your best ball teams and in fantasy points over expected. There were several who were scoring well in the blue and there were a few duds. But I'd like to start here with Jacoby Myers, who in PPR was the wide receiver 28. He had 771 yards and had a few spike weeks. Do you feel like we kind of priced Jacoby Myers right in 2022? I know a lot of people thought he was one of the most undervalued players in drafts. When it comes to Chicago Myers, I think that we got it priced right. right? He's, he was an ambiguous receiving core. We had high hopes for him. We knew there was a touchdown regression because he didn't get any last year, and then he was going to get them this year, hopefully. But when I look at Jacoby Myers' actual output, I think we, what we got was, was his ceiling, right? I know looking from weeks one through six, you know, 17, weeks one through 14 in the first part of the contest, he got you three good games, right? Three usable games with no competition, no competition from his running backs, no competitions from his wide receivers. You know, they're all injured off and on. And he, this is the best he could muster. Now we could blame the Patriots for this, but at the same time, this is kind of what Jacoby Myers is, right? He's a PPR-ish guy, which doesn't benefit you in half PPR. So it probably benefits you more in DraftKings uh, versus underdog. So you're talking about three usable games in regular season and then – you know, two to three usable games in the playoffs, which is great. Like if I got some usable games in the playoffs, I'm excited. But to take him at this point and wonder, does he get wide receiver 28 next year? Uh, to a point for game. Does he provide value every week? I don't think he does. Um, knowing that Devontae Parker was out, knowing that Kendrick Bourne was in the doghouse, you know, the, the corner they had a cornerback playing for them to kill hair and so on. Like, Oh, they care what to the bears, but like they had a cornerback come in to play receiver and put up almost nearly the same amount of spike weeks. So it's it says a lot to me about what is this guy's ceiling versus, you know, someone like KJ Osborne, who we believe that KJ Osborne could have elevated himself if if Adam Thielen got hurt. You know, Air Smith wasn't great. So there's and he had some spike weeks and sure his advance weight wasn't great. But if in the event that somebody got injured or is missing time in the season, we saw that KJ Osborne is gaining a bigger workload. Not the same case for Jacoby Myers, which look how how you want to look at it, but I I just don't know if I'm excited to take him next year unless his ADP stays around the same. You know, 
Yeah, I think like the Vikings are a team where it's easy to over the last few years it's been easy to project them at times to be fun on offense so it feels easier sometimes taking a player like KJ Osborne as opposed to somebody like Jacoby Myers because the Patriots would probably be happy to win every game 12-9 with four field goals if they had to but one player who brought a little more joy than the Patriots was Tyler Algier yeah he had a thousand yards in his rookie season faced eight defenders in the box at the highest rate of all running backs but still managed to produce do you think that Tyler Algier has a high ceiling if Cordero Patterson isn't re-signed for next year? I think he has a shot to do what he did this year, right? Um, his competition towards ACL besides Cordero Patterson, there was three running backs, and we really saw Algier pick up once his competition was out and saw Cordero Patterson start to slow down a little bit. I think Tyler Algier seems like those type of guys that you know, the, you know, Ramondre Stevenson, Damian Harris, Jamal William types, you know, Glare, LeGarrette Blount, um, a thousand yards, eight touchdowns, you know, every year. And if he gets his run blocking down, he gets and becomes a coach's guy. I, I wouldn't surprise me that he does it again next year for a thousand yards, eight touchdowns. And I think that's value. And I don't think in any scenario where we're drafting as of right now, where we will see him go anywhere close to ninth round, you know, nine to 13. And I think that's going to be fine. Because no one, yeah. people don't value non-pass catchers as much. Exactly that. Yeah, he just even though he had like one of the highest catch rates among running backs, he only had seventeen targets, which you know that's just not going to do it. That's like you know running backs in the Ravens' offense get more than that. Uh, another running back though who did do really well, and another of my favorite picks in this round was Khalil Herbert. Sixteen percent of his runs were ten yards or greater. He had five point seven yards per carry compared to David Montgomery's very pedestrian four point oh. And he just outdid Montgomery on nearly every metric. Like it was late in Khalil Herbert's injury when on his spell on IR, where David Montgomery finally passed him in total yards for the season, even though Herbert had missed several games. So do you think that the Bears, they've got all this cap space, you know, the there's a lot of good running backs out there this year. Do you think they're going to look to bring back David Montgomery or do you think Khalil Herbert really is the opportunity to take this backfield for his own for 2023? I, I don't think David Montgomery gets resigned. Um, I find it hard for the bears to have as much cap as they have to see that the running backs that are coming onto free agency and then just want to resign a guy that's been injured the last couple of years, right? David Montgomery hasn't finished a full season probably since his rookie years. I can remember. Um, but does that mean Khalil Herbert moves forward? I, I don't believe so. Khalil Herbert has also had his fair share of injuries. Um, although he's you know, physically gifted, knows how it has very great awareness. I don't think he does what David Montgomery did when it came to pass blocking, um, you know, kind of setting up to be like, you know, I always say it's a coach's guy, right? I, when I look at Brian Robinson coming out of college, I was like, oh, that's like a Dave, David Montgomery kind of guy. Been in the league, you know, been in college a little bit longer, so he knows how to do certain offenses better, uh, knows the game better. And I think Khalil Herbert, although is talented, I just don't think he's built to do things that a three-down running back could do, right? He could pass catch, sure. He can run and have great awareness, have great bursts, but that doesn't always put you in, you know, the coach's graces to have 80% of the touches. And I think the Bears are that type of team to not find that guy unless it was a high capital player. So does Khalil Herbert have a possibility to be fancy relevant? Yes. Was he fancy relevant this year? Yeah, I believe so. 
But I think this is where we have to understand that that's the cap. Like, there's, I don't see a situation where Killer Herbert gets you 1,200 yards next season. Yeah, I think he's probably going to, if David Montgomery isn't signed and we don't bring in anyone else, Khalil Herbert will probably fall into that kind of area of drafts where David Montgomery went this year. He'll be a dead zone running back and you'll have to embrace the risk if you do want to pursue him. Uh, another player who he definitely caught me out, I had far too much of him, Nico Collins, one top 30 performance all season, 6.6 targets per game, which was 43rd at wide receiver. And this whole Texans offense just regressed massively. And looking back now, it just feels like perhaps we expected a little too much of the Texans offense. You know, Brevin Jordan, Nico Collins, Davis Mills. We thought they'd all be fantasy relevant at the same time as Brandon Cooks. And it just didn't really pan out that way. Uh, I would throw on John Mechie too, because he was probably drafted quite a bit up until he um, had his leukemia. Which, you know, good news for him, I heard it's getting better, so um, great. But the problem with Nico Collins, and I'm, I'm one of the truthers, from, I had him a ton last year. And then I swore him off this year because I – but and then I came crawling back because I was like, oh, I got 18 on 17. Like, I'll take a pop shot, you know. Um, here's, here's the thing that I will say that the Texans had going for them. For anyone who bought into them, it just – it made sense, right? You're, you know, Davis Mills is going to his second year, right? Uh, we all know that second and third year quarterbacks tend to be dramatically better than their first year, even the worst ones, right? Zach Wilson's probably the only one that I can think of off the top of my head that like actually got worse. But so Davis Mills looked great towards his last season finish and Nico Collins was benefiting, you know, Nico Collins was injured in his rookie year, comes back in and he started to perform at the end. And um, so anyone that took Nico Collins coming in, I don't, blame him you know he said 6.6 targets per game you know quarterback was on a second year that played above what we thought you know maybe he became a neck Dak, Dak prescott right that o-line had three first rounders on it sure and with one of them being laramie tunzel one of the the better left tackles in the league i don't think that nico collins was did not live up to the hype sure um you know six three or six four in height you know a, a streaker which deep threat but he doesn't really do the deep threat right now he's been kind of a slant guy yeah. um so yeah it was easy to fall in love with someone like that with a great narrative you know a tanking team in the in the texans trading up to grab this guy so you know there's just a lot to go from so um but at the end of the day he didn't hold up and i don't think that he will hold up even with john mechie's return and a, the quarterback play gets better because he seems more like a two like a wide receiver two type of guy um you know guys that kind of fit his mold right now, like Dante Moncrief, you know, guys like that. <laughs> and we laugh, but Moncrief was pretty fancy relevant, right? Like eight yeah, yeah. yards, eight touchdowns, kind of a deep threat guy gets lost until we find someone that can completely take away from Nico Collins, you know, to make, so he can become a wide receiver too. And until we find a quarterback and, and an offensive coach, um, offensive minded coach that could throw, to make those plays, make those play calls. I just, I don't see it. And um, round 18 next year, yeah, I'll probably come crawling back. But if we're talking around 13, 14 again, I'm, yeah, I'm going to stay away. Uh, there's, there's nothing going on this team that spells upside right now. Yeah. And um, one of the big problems with taking Nico Collins was that if you did it, you were taking, taking him over somebody like Christian Watson, who went right by him in ADP practically. And, Christian Watson had one of the most outstanding four-game stretches of any player at any point this season. Like between weeks 10 and 13, when you needed that 
propelling into the fantasy playoffs. He had 99.2 PPR points, which was the third most among wide receivers, seven touchdowns in that spell, and 12 yards per target. So he was really fantasy relevant. Do you think that we should have been more aggressive with Christian Watson, knowing that he had Aaron Rodgers? Or do you think, given how his season kind of yo-yoed, that ADP kind of got this one right? I think ADP got this one right for sure. Um, He could have been a little higher. I don't disagree with anybody that says that he could have been around 11, 12 guy. Um, and we should have been aggressive with Christian Watson, right? They, he, they did draft him pretty high, um, high for Packer standards, right? <laughs> um, and he still had a MVP level quarterback, right? So this is, I think, where we draw that line on Jacoby Myers to or KJ Osborne to Christian Watson. If Randall Cobb gets hurt, which is almost 100%, um, Alan Lazard gets hurt, Romeo Dubs doesn't play, then Christian Watson becomes de facto, and he has the quarterback and the offense to give him those targets, to give him a touchdown. There is an upside in this, and I think we should have played around doing that, right? Ellen Zarr can't catch them all. Um, came into the season injured. Uh, obviously, that was at the last one or two weeks we start, We found out Ellen Zarr was coming in injured, but people bought on Dubs, a guy that was drafted later, and I – I mean, that's just kind of a bad move, right? Like We talk about yeah. ADP finding you know, draft capital, follow the money. I mean, this is it. You follow the money. You follow the draft capital. He was a higher-picked guy. So I think that we got this wrong in the sense that he should have probably gone this late. But at the same time, you know, what's better, 12 or 11? It's about the same in the long run. Yeah. But I think he I- should have been someone that we should have targeted harder. I can't help but think back to that opening week of the season where he literally dropped the what would have been a 75-yard touchdown through his hands. And if he'd connected on that, I feel like the early season would have been very different for him and he could have been one of the real, true, elite, late-round picks for best ball. But before we'll move on to round 14 and we've got one of the real league winners this year but before i do guys just remember to like and subscribe really huge for us leave a comment and tell us about which of these players you loved jamal williams matt ryan wandale robinson jarvis landry david and joku robbie anderson gerald everett zamir white robert tonyan alec pierce jameson williams and daniel jones you can see it in the advance rates there jamal williams absolutely prepared held you into the fantasy playoffs and in terms of fantasy points over expected this was around when you parallel it with round 13 where we had four or five players who were above expected this was a lot of negatives and there were a lot of players who weren't consistently performing jamal williams we've got to start with him 17 touchdowns 62 yards per game which was 18th 144th in russian epa but the reason you love Jamal Williams were all those touchdowns. He was the RB12 in half PPR total points, and 44.8% of his points came from touchdowns. You can see on this graphic here, the red is what percentage of those points that he scored each week were just purely from touchdowns alone. I mean, Jamal Williams is somebody that was a priority free agent for the Lions going back a couple of years when they signed him. If you watched Hard Knocks over the summer, you definitely picked up on the fact that the team didn't really like, seem to like DeAndre Swift too much at times and didn't want to give him everything. Do you think that, in hindsight, Jamal Williams probably should have been a little bit higher and DeAndre Swift a little bit lower? 100% agree. That, that, that should have been the case. Um it, it, we talk about you can't predict injury, but DeAndre Swift, 
it's perpetually injured, right? That man lives on the questionable radar every single week. Um, and that doesn't mean that he's less talented for being injured. No, that does not not the case. But if you're missing games, then, you you know, the best ability is availability, right? So how I feel about Jamal Williams, though, and I think this is one of those that, yeah, right, he should have been drafted higher. He should have been a round 10 guy, right? He should have been up there. He could have been in the Ramondre Stevenson's talk a little, little, bit, little bit, like right before, like right after Ramondre Stevenson should have been guys like Jamal Williams, right? We should have been taking him because we know that Swift has the possibility of being hurt. We know that Williams is a coach's guy, and I talk about this. Coaches' players are are so invaluable. It doesn't matter if you're good. It does not matter if you're a coach guy and the coach likes you. You're going to be in. You could be the worst player in the league. We've seen it. We've seen it time and time again, right? Jamal Williams is a coach guy. You know, the the off-season TV show that had for, you know, Hard Knocks showed he was a coach's guy. The, the coach literally left. It was like, Jamal, talk to him. <laughs> right? <laughs> he's, yeah. And here's the thing. The Packers loved him. The Packers yeah. loved him as a pass blocker. He just, sure, he didn't get to keep his job there, but the Lions signed him. Your competition, your main competitor in your division signed your guy saying that we believe he's good. And he did do well. This is, you know, he's been there for a couple of years now. And then, well, it's second year now, and he's showing that he's a leader. He's showing that he can run that office. He's showing that he's still a great pass blocker. That's what he was known for. And to top it off, he's the hard nose up the middle guy. He's not swift. So if they're yeah. on goal line, which happens way more often than we like to admit, uh, you know, first in goal, who's getting the ball? Swift or Williams? Second in goal, who's getting the ball? For, you know, Swift or what? It's going to be Williams almost every single time. And you're just buying touchdowns. Uh, 17 touchdowns, sure, we can't predict that portion, but would you have been surprised if he got eight touchdowns this year? No, and and just picking up what you said there, I think particularly with Dan Campbell and this team of, you know, all the coaches in Detroit pretty much are ex-players, so being a player, like, like you mentioned, that a player's player and a coach's player, I think that really matters there. But yeah, 17 touchdowns, I mean, Jamal Williams has scored 30 total touchdowns across his career, so over 50% of them came this year alone. So I don't think we should feel too bad about not seeing 17. But, yeah, it definitely seemed in his realm of possibilities for 8 to 10, and perhaps he should have been going a couple of rounds earlier. I think he could have gone a little earlier for sure. And um, like I said, he still is a pass catcher. He still does some work. His career last year wasn't bad either. It was still about 800 scrimmage yards. And a couple of touchdowns. Um, so sure it wasn't eight, but that was his first year in Detroit. So and he didn't even play all his games. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that he is doing as well as he did. Yeah. Uh, another player who a lot of people had high hopes for was Matt Ryan, who had a change of team for you know, first time in it, you know, whatever, however many years. And it seemed like things were going to be set up for him to succeed, but instead it never played out that way. The offensive line, which was one of the major big stalwarts of the Colts and had been keeping that team looking great when they've had this various different quarterbacks in, heavily regressed. And Ryan really just didn't seem to have anything more to give. <clears throat> so we were, you know, we were coming into this on the back of a year where he'd looked pretty mediocre for the Falcons and I believe they were dead last in offensive DVOA and it was the first team that had ever won like eight games or so but still been dead last in DVOA should we possibly have read some of these signs and thought okay well 
if the situation devolves slightly in Indy and things aren't completely perfect, is Matt Ryan's ceiling really, really low? Because that's definitely what it feels like in hindsight. I wrote an article, numerous articles, about Matt Ryan and Michael Pittman this year. And I made a bunch of tweets about it. I, I kind of sounded very pessimistic towards the Colts. Um, and this is the thing I said. Uh, Poitin Nelson is probably the most legendary Colt that we have right now. And because he's so good that he apparently everyone thought that the rest of that line was good. That line hasn't been good since Car- even when Carson Wentz was there. I think they were bottom of pass block and a mediocre run blocking the uh, off- offensive line. This wasn't something that, we had to know. They took a left tackle that tore his ACL from the Chiefs last year, you know, Eric Fisher, and he went over there, and he, and he didn't do anything. So I don't know why people were surprised coming into the season. It just kind of just showed that, um, that Quentin Nelson was so good that everyone believed that the line was good. I asked everyone this year, like, can you name an offensive lineman on that team right now that isn't Quentin Nelson? <laughs> right? Like, no. The answer is no, you can't because it's not actually good. Um, so – that tells you one thing. So that line has been bad for two years now. So not just one. And then you, Carson Wentz had a run for his life when he was there the year before. So what does that mean for Matt Ryan? Matt Ryan's way less, way, way less mobile, much older, less fearless coming up the middle to take a hit. Um, I, I, I think this, the writing was on the wall coming into the season. He, the Falcons let him go, not because you know they didn't want to win games anymore. They just don't think they could. This, this you got to move on. This is Big Ben. 2.0 and unlike the Steelers they said we're gonna move on we're not gonna tread wheels here so uh I don't think it was disappointing if you if you caught the science I think everyone did you know people love Michael Pittman but Michael Pittman is a 1b 2a at best um he's not a playmaker he's not taking you know four, you know 10 yard catch for 90 yards his highlights are short routes and in a high point right that's that's great so I, I don't know. I just I think Matt Ryan here should have been way below. I think ADP got it incorrect. There's no upside of this guy. There was no games where you could look at on every week-to-week basis where you said, Matt Ryan's throwing me three touchdowns at 300 yards. That's how yeah. the Colts win football. Like, no, there was no, nothing in their, their DNA to do that this year. Yeah, it was, it was definitely rough. And I think the kind of lesson here is for me that these aren't the kind of quarterbacks to build two ta- two quarterback teams around you know you could have Joe Burrow you could have Patrick Mahomes but if you're in a spell where you need your second quarterback to give you usable weeks and you've got somebody on the back end of a career like Matt Ryan that needs to be a three quarterback build um moving on to another position that's a onesie the tight ends there were three of them in this round and again kind of a similar theme David and Joku Gerald Everett Robert Tonyan the tight end 12, 18, and 29. And this was an area where people were taking shots at tight end. You know, you start filling out your roster a little bit and it's like, oh, well, I need to get one now because it's probably a little bit of a tear break soon. And I just think this really encapsulates the tight end position quite well. All of these players were similarly efficient 1.8 fantasy points per touch for Njoku and Everett, 1.6 for Tonyan. But the range of their outcomes was huge with 17 different point places between them and like almost three points per game difference. Do you think these are the kind of tight ends that obviously Njoku played well and Robert Tonyan regressed a bit from his best year a couple of years ago? But 
in this range, if you're taking a tight end, do you need to be building with three, or do you think some of these guys are okay in elite builds if you've got Travis Kelsey? I think you have to build a three. Um, Kelsey being the exception. I think Kelsey's the only tight end in fantasy history where I could say that, you know, I could think of off the top of my head that you could run with him solo every year, right? Or, or, or a, a, a secondary lower end guy. Um, you have to have three, I think, even with some of the more upper side. Like, think about this year Mark Andrews, uh, Talis Goddard, Don Schultz, Kyle Pitts. All those guys would have, TJ Hawkinson would have all benefited you if you had three guys, right? Um, so, Najoku, Jarrell Everett, Robert Tundin, I, I think they were priced well. I think they were correct to be drafted. You, you base them on situation, you base it on the team they were on. And all three of these guys were in, funny enough, three different types of situations. But they added to the same idea. Well, David Njoku is probably the only weapon left on that team besides Amari Cooper. You know, Gerald Everett is playing with the elite quarterback that will probably get him onesies and twosies. Well, Robert Tunyon is the most veteran guy on his team that's left. Or like they all had the best with the MVP level quarterback. So all the narratives fit, and obviously they gave you different outcomes. But I don't think you can sit there and go back and say that that was wrong. Yeah, I think that's, that's where they what, what they ended up doing. Sure, that results orientated, right? But the logic made sense for these guys. I would happily have taken two of these three guys constantly. I'm not a ton of guy. I just never have been. I don't think Aaron Rodgers targets as tight end as much as I love. But you're talking about Everett, Joku, and you throw in whoever fans or Bellinger or whatever you want to throw down the road. Like I'm, I'm happy with it. I'll go with it. Yeah, very much. I think Tonyan's one of those where the writing was on the wall that. Yeah, this is a guy who had incredible touchdown luck a few years back, and then you know multiple injuries, and he just isn't what people would like him to be. Whereas Joku and Everett seem to have at least a bit more athletic ability, and I'd rather bet on that than that kind of you know touchdown based volume. Uh, a player who has seen a lot of volume for his career, Jarvis Landry. Ended up as the wide receiver 91, 5.3 points per game, missed eight games. He was 83, 83rd in targets per game. And now he's a pending free agent again this offseason. Did you have high hopes for Jarvis Landry going into this season? I had zero hopes for Jarvis Landry coming into the season. As a Dolphins fan, I love him. I will always have so much love for Jarvis Landry. But from a best boss perspective, right, he is absolutely the guy you don't want to draft. Uh, for a long time, they used to call it the, the franchise quarterback tier level, the Andy Dalton line. I called the best ball level the Jarvis Landry line. <laughs> Is Jarvis Landry relevant to you in best ball on any team that wasn't the Dolphins? And the answer most of the times it's it's a no, right? It's He requires someone to get hurt. Um, he's at best going six receptions for 60 yards and zero touchdowns which equivalates an underdog to nine points, which equivalates to 12 points in DraftKings. And that's his per game situation every week. So he's you're drafting him in what, round 14? To get a guy that will contribute you zero games. He contributed one game and that was in week one. After that, he did nothing for you. So that was probably, this is probably one of the overbites. And to top it off, he's 30 now. He's a 30-year-old slot receiver that can't stay healthy. What? Yeah. What, what are we buying them for? Exactly. I mean, it, it just feels in best ball, yes, you want usable weeks, and yes, you want players who are going to catch the ball, but give me the likes of Christian Watson or somebody like that, somebody explosive who isn't just going to catch the ball and give you 
some points that week. Give me yeah. weak winning weeks every time. I just, you need contribution yeah. weeks. And if he's not contributing, his score might as well be zero. Um, <laughs> his competition was better than him. Michael Thomas, Alva Kamara, Taysom Hill, uh, Chris Olave, all those guys. Even Marcus Calloway would, had more, would have been more beneficial from a fantasy standpoint coming into the season than Jarvis Landry. And this is why I love highlighting him, and I call it the Landry line, because he, in best ball, he is extremely non-relevant. Moving on to round 15, Tyler Higby, Raheem Mostert, Van Jefferson, Marvin Jones, Tyrion Davis-Price, J.D. McKissick, Mac Jones, Noah Fant, Hayden Hurst, Sammy Watkins, Evan Ingram, Paris Campbell. Some fun players in here. You know, you could see the six players with a positive advance rate in here. So it was quite hard to consistently miss on players in this round. And there were even a few who were giving you positive fantasy points over expected per game, which anytime that I see positive fantasy points over expected per game on a per game basis, it just feels like that's a player who's been relevant and had a lot of good times. Raheem Moster is somebody who... I felt like I had a good season this year, 9.7 points per game, which isn't outstanding. But for where you were getting him, um, the type of builds you were building around, it kind of was enough sometimes. Uh, he had five touchdowns and five top 15 performances. We talked about following the money earlier on, but Chase Edmonds was not the pick that you wanted in this Dolphins backfield. I, I I'll tell you this as a Dolphins fan. We have taken we we try to find ricky williams every year we've done this i'm serious there's a list of these guys frank gore you know lamar miller well lamar miller was drafted by look look, look at like frank gore arian foster no sean moreno chase edmonds um raheem moster jordan howard malcolm brown like the the list literally goes on and on and if you're anyone time that someone signs a dolphins run a running back i'm just like I, i don't expect it but I will always kind of take a shot on the second guy. The second guy always kind of works out. Malcolm Brown kind of was kind of goofy, but like Raheem Mostert's a guy that I think that I believe that he would have been more relevant because the scheme made more sense to him. I thought he was just a better back than Edmonds. I didn't think Edmonds showed anything in Arizona and us signing them just was just funny. I think it was just meant to show that Kyle Shanahan could have been a smarter guy. Like, oh, you know, I, I can make any... Sorry, Kyle Shanahan, but um, like, yeah, I, was like, I can make any of these guys work, right? Um. I think he was a great pick. Raheem Mostert is probably the guy that you wanted, obviously, along with Jeff Wilson in the future. But you, I think coming to the season, coming from his ADP, given that Chase Edmonds hasn't finished seasons, um, and if you didn't believe in his talent, I think you take Raheem Mostert because even if he only gave you 10 games this year and he only gave you five good ones, great. That's, you're paying for this at round 15. That's the steal. The yeah. front five or back five, it doesn't matter. It's contribution games, and I, and I love it. So I think that um, Raheem Mostert is obviously a great pick here. And I would look forward to him next year if we kept him re-signed, but I hope that his ADP still stays low. Hoping that the age part factors into it. This is the kind of archetype of a player that if you're building a zero RB team, you want players like this who are going to give you those usable weeks whilst you wait for the injuries to pile up and some of your other dart throws to really turn into every down players. Uh, in the last round, we kind of talked about a whole host of tight ends. And again, there was a bunch of them here. This was like really the area in the draft where people were dying for tight ends to be relevant. Hayden Hurst, he was somebody who in my eyes was a complete bust. Yes, he stayed healthy for most of the season, but 
single-digit points in 66% of his games. He only had 5% of Joe Burrow's passing touchdowns, and he's a free agent again this offseason. So it'll be interesting to see where the, the Bengals sign him. If the Bengals do sign him, can do you think that – where do you think Hayden Hurst goes in drafts? Do you think that people are just going to be so attached to this offense being explosive that – he'll get pushed up slightly to that kind of like round 11, round 12 zone? Or do you think he's going to be, people will take notice of the stats and he'll be around a similar position? I, I think people will take notice of the stats. Um, they're going to remember that he didn't help them last year. Hayden Hurts is one of those guys that's like, oh, he, he didn't help me. You know, like, oh God, this 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 felt bad. Um, and I think he stays the same. Do I, Would I draft him? I probably would. If he stays on the team, goes two years in a row, gets another year in the offense, another year of chemistry with Joe Burrow, you're just buying touchdowns. This is something I think we get lost with tight ends. We're always looking for, like, uh, you know, I hope I can find the next Jordan Reed. You know, like this guy that was, you know, I hope I can get 2014 Kelsey, right? You're Most of the times you're not. You're not getting Dalton Schultz again. It's going to be really tough to find these guys. So when, at the end of this these rounds, if you're not taking a tight end in the first time, nine to ten rounds, you're buying touchdowns. And I think Hayden Hurst is a touchdown-buying guy. Joe Mixon saw a little regression this year. Tyler Boyd saw a kind of regression this year. Even when other guys were injured, Tyler Boyd really did step up. Hayden Hurst is having a decent you know, playoff set-off games this year. So I think we start to take note of that. If he go, if he gets a minor spike, then that guy, this guy becomes relevant for you in best ball. You know, yeah. tight end Even though you know, I've seen people do four tight end builds. Like I think Hayden Hurst has its has his value in fantasy. And I think this ADP, if it stays the same, it's a perfect time to try to draft him again. I'm hoping he goes a little bit later, but it wouldn't surprise me if he went up a little bit. If he goes a little bit, I, I would probably dodge him. But at this point, he's a perfect ADP. Yeah, and I think, you know, the Bengals can move on from Joe Mixon and Tyler Boyd with little to no cap hits. So if they do decide to overhaul things a little bit to try and pay T. Higgins and be able to pay Joe Burrow, like a market resetting contract, then perhaps I'd have more interest in him. A tight end who definitely surpassed expectations was Evan Ingram. Tight end nine overall, the fourth most yards at the position, four top five weekly finishes and 17% target share. That spell where everything just seemed to click for him was brilliant. And I look back now, because I was very in on the Jaguars as a whole. I had plenty of Zay Jones. I had plenty of Trevor Lawrence and Christian Kirk. But I didn't have a huge amount of Evan Ingram. And looking back now, I'm cursing myself because it just seems so obvious that the time in New York was marred by poor play calling and issues like that and injuries and Outside of his rookie year, things just never really seemed to be a good situation. Do you think we should have maybe bought in a little bit more coming into this year? Definitely. Um, I think his ADP was a little too low. Um, I bought a lot of Evan Ingram because he was on the you know cheaper side, as we like to call it, right? Um, he's, a, he's athletically been a beast. Um, yeah, kind of has some stone hand moments at times, but... Athletics was there. They paid him a lot of money to come in for one year. You have probably one of the best quarterback prospects to come in. You know, if it wasn't for, let's say, Joe Burrow, you know, it would probably be the best one since Andrew Luck kind of situation. This guy's, you know, Trevor Lawrence had a great year last year, whether people want to admit it or not. He just had the worst receiving core of all time. So I look at Evan Ingram and I, I look at Zay Jones. I look at uh, Christian Kirk and I go, man, you have a great quarterback. You actually might have a shot. And to be fair, I'm also just not the biggest Giants fan. I never thought they were a good organization. I actually know a one of my people, one of my acquaintances here is a uh, 
former Giants player, and he tells me it was like the worst organization he ever been a part of. <laughs> I'll put it this way: he was on this. He was on the same team with Eli Apple when he was there, and he was like, "Man, it, it sucks to be there." And it expelled, and it says a lot to me that that you know he would say that. And so when he anyone that leaves there, I think has a chance to do better because it has a, or historically in the last few years it just wasn't a good wasn't a good uh, organization. Now it's better this time around yeah. as Brian Ball and whatnot. But up until that point, Evan Ingram left. You know, he know that he had a chance. He still, even on his bad years, was still a overall relevant player in the NFL. So it doesn't surprise me he did as well as he did. Um, but it, and also, I believe a lot of it came down with Trevor Lawrence just being as good as he was. And yeah. a change of scenery is huge. I think anybody can relate to that. Yeah, definitely. Tyler Higby didn't have a change of scenery, but he did have you know different quarterbacks at various points throughout the season. 6.9 points per game. And I think he's somebody that if you told a lot of fantasy players that Tyler Higby finishes tight end nine, they'd probably be a little bit surprised. But he hit seven top 12 weeks. And at a position where we're really looking for any kind of consistency or anything like that, Tyler Higby is never going to win you a week. He's never going to go eight for 102 touchdowns. But if you can put up sort of 10, 12 points a week, that's not bad. I mean, obviously, it's some duds which dragged his average down. He had three touchdowns on the season, so it's easy to imagine that if Matthew Stafford had been healthy, that it could have been a better season for Higby. The funniest thing about Tyler Higby is knowing that he had seven games with eight or more targets. <laughs> seven. And he almost has more of those games than he has games with less of them. If you go from at least seven targets or more... He's fifty percent flat, and it's, and it's which is crazy. So from a tight end standpoint, I, I'm not a Higby guy, but next year I will be because he's probably the only person on this team that's left. And I, if you hold if you hold tight end to the same level as receiver, uh, normal flex, or running back, Higby comes off as a disappointment. But from a target standpoint, you want him, right? You 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 know your tight ends on average, if they can average with you eight points per week in half PPR, that's great. I think Tyler Higby is one of those guys that can do that. You know, he can get you, you know, six, you know, 60 yards on four catches or 40, you know, 45 yards on six catches, whatever the number you want to throw in there. He's perfect for that. You're not getting zeros. And those numbers, those seven points a week at the tight end position add up to about 100 points at the end of the year. So I, I don't discount it. I know I always make fun of the Jarvis Landry line because it's a flex wide, wide receiver, but. From Higby's standpoint, this guy is got he should be your tight end two from now on when you're drafting him. You should just be taking him as a tight end two and going with it. I, I think he had a great year. Um the stat line didn't show up, but they had three quarterback, four quarterback changes. That whole yeah. team was in disarray, that O line was bad. But one thing that stayed consistent, everybody that was on that team threw to Tyler Higby. You know, Sean McVay made made schemes where Tyler Higby was the guy that, hey man, worst case scenario, man, throw it to Tyler. He, he he'll always be there for you. You know, and, <laughs> and, that's, and that's great. You know, he sure he did get the touchdowns, but he's also a huge guy. He's six six. He could get you six touchdowns eventually. So he gets three more touchdowns. Then he becomes way more face relevant for you than most tight ends would. I look at guys like Robert Tanya and the rest of them. They don't, none of those guys had consistently nine to eight targets a week. So yeah, definitely. Uh, I he disappointed, sure. But I think that's just because of the Rams as a whole. But if you look at objective possibility of being used, I think Tyler Higby was a steal 
an amazing steal. Okay, so moving on to round 16, please do like and subscribe, guys. We've got Zay Jones, Corey Davis, Jared Goff, Ryan Tannehill, Austin Hooper, Baker Mayfield, Taysom Hill, Marlon Mack, Isaiah Likely, Brevin Jordan, AJ Green, and Daryl Williams. This is a really interesting round. Like You can see that there's some really good and there's some really bad when it comes to advance rate. Uh, you know, plenty of players who just gave you nothing. But that's kind of okay where we're at at this point in the draft. You are taking speculative shots. And it, that kind of translated over at fantasy points over expected. Even Zay Jones, who was fantastic, wasn't putting up positive fantasy points over expected consistently. And we'll have to start with Zay Jones. You know, friend of the show, Josh Norris, he was calling it all summer. He had four top eight finishes, ran a route on over 90% of routes for Jags. So he was rarely coming off the field. He had the 18th most targets among wide receivers and the 14th most red zone targets. Did you buy into the Zay Jones sort of sleeper pick, or were you like many people just thinking, you know, he's bounced around a bit? It's kind of hard to believe that now it's all going to click. I bought him. Um, and I don't think it's, I can't argue that it was not a great buy. Um, it's not a good or a bad buy, basically, is my point. You know, at a half PPR, you know, he's about one, two, I think like four usable games up into finals, five, five usable games. And at that point, it's a net positive. Right, you're getting five contribution weeks, four contribution weeks from a streaking deep threat wide receiver. Right, that's what his role is. That's a win because that's all you're paying for. Round what you said said yourself, round 16. You know, for these kind of guys, sign me up. I think um, I liked them. I took a lot of them. I don't think the competition for him with his uh, guys were at the same level. Christian Kirk and Zay Jones and Evan Ingram were fighting for different type of targets, and I think it showed. Uh, I don't know what that means for next year, but I I enjoyed it. I had about 20 to 30% of Zay Jones. He costed you nothing, and I think yeah. his role with the zero competition, four targets, was perfect. Yeah, uh, it's it's hard to disagree with any of that. Definitely with Calvin Ridley there, it feels like it might be a little trickier. Uh, Definitely. Moving that's on. the part that's scary. Yeah. Jared Goff was another player who definitely outplayed people's expectations. He was the QB 10 in total points scored through for over 4,000 yards. And he was the sixth most among all quarterbacks, 29 touchdowns to seven interceptions. We've seen Jared Goff play well over the course of his career when things are right. And the writing seemed to be on the wall that this offensive line was good. We knew his skill group was incredibly good. We'd seen Ayman Rasing Brown be a complete stud the previous season. We knew that he was getting DeAndre Swift as healthy as DeAndre Swift can be, and he had TJ Hawkinson back healthy. Should we have been drafting Jared Goff two, three rounds earlier? Yeah. We showed up. I th- and um we talked about this. Great line, great receiving core. Might be a run heavy team possibly with Dan Campbell there, but who knows? Um but I would I think where Matt Ryan was, Jared Goff should have been right there. Right. You're you're asking yourself, is is this team gonna survive defensively? Probably not. The Lions were the worst defense in the league last year, and I think the worst defense in the league this year. Or or at least bottom two, right? So either way, they think they were always in that case. Um they're gonna go into shootouts. Uh I think they were I think for like five weeks straight, teams that were playing them were putting up their best fantasy points against them, right? Uh so I think that he should have been where Matt Ryan was, right? There's no rushing upside, but you ask yourself, can Jared Goff throw me three touchdowns this week? I think you get that 
answer is about 30% of the time, I think he could. So at his going rate, you should have bought him there, saying that 30-something to 40% of the time, this guy might throw three touchdowns. And, and that's all you need to make a fantasy-relevant quarterback. Yeah, and that, that feels like a completely fair estimation for where we should be drafting him going into this season. Obviously, it depends what we do around him and stuff. Uh, one player who sometimes masquerades as a quarterback <laughs> is not somebody that a lot of fantasy people enjoy talking about, but Taysom Hill finished the season as a tight end seven, 9.2 half PPR points per game, seven double-digit games, seven touchdowns. I think he had less than 20 receptions on the season because of all this. The Saints really would struggle to move on from him. His contract is ridiculous. It's still like $14 million this year. It's going to cost them. So they seem stuck with him for another year. Should we just be at a point where we know what we're getting from Taysom Hill? We know he's just going to be a difficult player to project or predict, but say, okay, well, sometimes the good outweighs the bad and anywhere where he's tight and eligible, we should be drafting him. Yeah. I, I, I say that like so sadly because I was an anti Taysom Hill guy um, just because I just thought he was like just a goofy, goofy player in the league, just the worst of it. But you're talking from a tight end perspective. He had, I want to say eight, contribution weeks right he put up at least seven points or more or eight points or 10 or 12 or nine or 30 my god like i guess you have to draft him next year i i i wouldn't take him anywhere in the top 12 like tight end you know round 12 or anything but if he went round 13 to 18 i'm taking him every any chance you get because he is this amalgamation of a guy that could go out there and just be a gadget player. He's exactly what it is. He's exactly the gadget player we, when you hear the word gadget player, want to be. Tencent did it. Um, the results don't lie. Seven double-digit games at the tight end position. That's the grossest thing in history. Even if they were the first seven games of the year, who cares? It's amazing upside from where he got drafted. He was even undrafted for a good chunk of the year, too. Yeah, and I think, you know, the big people who make claims that he should be drafted as a running back because that's how he got all his touchdowns, you know, he's rushing them more than he's catching anything, and it'd be completely fair, I doubt that we see that happen, but yeah, okay, I mean, moving on He's a complete Big- unit of a man too, he's 6'2 230 yeah. pounds sure, small for a tight end, but for a running back, for a quarterback that's huge, yeah. that's a huge guy Pivot is someone who's not huge Baker Mayfield, it quite a strange season really you know he started off as the Panthers QB1 before ending up on the Rams and he was very similar in a lot of ways for his spells with the Panthers and the Rams like they weren't good situations either of them but we went in you know well I used the royal we I definitely wasn't aiming it but a lot of people thought that Baker Mayfield was going to be the Panthers best quarterback that they'd had in several years how did you feel about him going into this year? I, I hated him, actually. I'm, I've been a very anti-Mayfield guy since ever, after his rookie year. I thought his rookie year was amazing. Um, yeah. He actually has one of the better rookie years I, we've ever we've had in a while next to what, like Justin Herbert. Um, but he's bad. He's not good at this. He's not good for fantasy. He's never been good for fantasy. He's never broke a 4,000 yards passing. He's not a 30-year touch, 30 touchdown guy. He's not none of these things. His highest touchdown was 27 touchdowns thrown, and that was his rookie year. After that, it's been 22, 26, 17, 10 this year. Like, 
I don't know why people sign up for him. Um, I don't see it. I don't, I, I think that this year, what's going to happen is since he wants some games and he's going to be with Sean McVay, and if he somehow ends up on, as a Ram again next year as a starting quarterback, I don't think he will, but if he ends up happening, people will buy in, I think, and still draft him. I think he should be completely undrafted across I the think- board. He had zero contribution games this year. Zero. Yeah, I, th- I think the thing with Mayfield, it's a bit like Gardner Minshew on a level where people buy into the personality of it. It's like, oh, Baker's so crazy. Baker's so funny and stuff like that. And it's like, so what? That's great. But I don't want him on my team. I don't want him on my fantasy team. And I don't want him any ne- anywhere near any player that I've drafted either. Gardner Minshew had more contribution games and he played only like two games this year. Mayfield literally had zero contribution games. He has no games, I think, that were at 19 points. So literally, he roster-clogged you. That's all he did. You could have taken anybody else that had a better chance. And quarterback Mm -hmm. position is the easiest to get a contribution point out of. You just have to be in a losing game. He was in nothing but losing games, and he still could have found a way to contribute. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to round 17. Jared McKinnon, Davis Mills, Jameson Crowder, Eno Benjamin, Curtis Samuel, Donovan Peoples-Jones, Gus Edwards, Trey Sermon, Logan Thomas, Carson Wentz, Moali Cox, and Mark Ingram. This is really getting into the kind of rounds where you were taking dart throws. It was hard to know which of these players were going to turn out great for you. Jared McKinnon, you know, he was 30 years old coming into this season. Now he's 31, but he still aged in matter to him. Down the stretch, he was massive. And we saw it. Curtis Samuel had great moments early on. And when Carson Wentz was in the team, Donovan Peoples-Jones was actually one of the real steals of drafts this year. You see, we've got a bunch of players who are above that line. And honestly, I don't really mind players giving me negative fantasy points over expected at this point in the draft because it's so hard to guess what you're going to get. But Donovan Peoples-Jones, nine games of 50-plus yards, 100.1 QBR rating when targeted. 19 deep targets. It just felt like for huge parts of the season, he was the most reliable wide receiver or even pass catcher in Cleveland. And then, of course, Deshaun Watson came in and deep-sixed it. But looking back at the offseason, we knew there was only Amari Cooper and David Njoku. We'd seen Jacoby Brissett be okay before. Should people have been more aggressive with Donovan Peoples-Jones? Because he gave you everything he wanted in a late round wide receiver target. Uh, this one's tough because he, he DPJ is to me what Zay Jones is. The only difference was the quarterback play coming into the season wasn't the same. The running back coming into the season wasn't the same. Nick Chubb is way more useful. Jacoby Brissett had himself a Geno Smith year. No one wants to admit this, right? We forgot about it, but he had himself a Geno Smith year. He really did. Um, and he should I, be and going I, to the Pro Bowl. He should be going to the Pro Bowl. He should be going to the Pro Bowl. He should. Uh, He had himself a good year, and I don't think anyone expected that, though. So I I could sit here and say, oh, yeah, it was pretty obvious he's a wide receiver, too. But wide receiver, too, can mean anything. Who's the wide receiver, too, on the Chiefs? You know what I mean? Like, you know, (laughs) if I'm not feeling good about Patrick Holmes throwing to us, too, why do I feel good about Jacoby Brissett throwing to DPJ? So... I think that's fair, yeah. yeah okay. I think that's okay. And, that, and, that's, and that's where it is. If you bought him for a deep threat guy because that's who you know he is, cool. You're, you're playing best ball, and I, and I love you for that. But other than that, I think he was priced adequately coming into what we knew for this year. 
Yeah. Uh, Curtis Samuel, he was in Washington for his second season, first season with Carson Wentz. In the games with Carson Wentz, it was all rosy. Like, it started the season and Carson Wentz in those couple of games where I think he was like a top five quarterback in back-to-back weeks. And it was like, whoa, did we get the Washington commanders completely wrong? Curtis Samuel put up 12 PPR points in games with Wentz and then seven targets per game. But the moment that the quarterback situation kind of hit flux there, it all just went to pieces. Taylor Heineke was not consistently dumping off in the same way that Carson Wentz did. How do you feel about the kind of Curtis Samuel situation going into year three? Do you think he's somebody who potentially could get cut by the commanders now that they're changing offensive coordinator? Getting cut, that's a toss-up. You know, we're not in the room. I think if you're looking at what Curtis Samuel did, if you're looking at your cap and all those stuff, I think he still fits. They did overpay for him, but I'm, I'm sure they could find a way to have him redo his contract, right? This is, seems like a perfect situation where a team is like, hey, Curtis, you know, your contract's kind of crazy. Can you do something about it? And he wants to stay on a team because he hasn't built up enough capital to go to other teams yet besides be on the bench. I think with the commanders, he has proven himself to be a starter. And I think Curtis Samuel is someone that I'm willing to take next year. I think that the dump offs matter. The placekeeping matters. Uh, He's good. He's relatively good. Uh, I don't think he's going to be a thousand yard guy again anytime soon or even get close to that. But he he has that reactive, kind of reminds of Albert Wilson, you know, yeah. Very much so could take it to the house randomly, could streak it, get some good yak. Um, so I, I like where he's at. I like I hope he stays in the commanders. I hope that they go forward with their Sam Howell and they find a way to build chemistry and use him correctly because I think he will have relevancy again next year. Yeah. Uh Gus Edwards only played eight games this season, seven point two points per game in those and which when you look at that, he had 10.4 touches per game and you know what this Ravens offense can be like when they're really cooking, feels a little bit disappointing. It felt like really we didn't see the Gus bus fully just steaming through players like we used to. I like Gus Edwards. I, I didn't take a ton of them, but what we saw for him this year kind of gives you hope. If he finds a way to get healthy, stay on this team, you know there's a chance that he steals a couple of touchdowns, and that's all you're buying. If he goes this late again next year, he had three contributive games this year. He didn't play a whole season, obviously. But in the event that he could have, you could have gotten six, nine useful games out of a guy that you're getting in, what, round 17? I think this was a steal even with the results we got. Right? Yeah, I, I, I think, think that's completely fair. I think there's definitely going to be – quick. Oh, he's already yeah. two on his team. It's perfect. I think there's going to be questions about whether he stays on the team because they can save almost $5 million by cutting him. But the Ravens don't have many draft picks this year. They've only got five when they're used to having like eight, nine or so. So it kind of feels like reshaping that room might have to wait a bit or the kind of player they bring in might have to be somebody who can't necessarily challenge straight away. But I think if this running back room stays as it is and if we're getting Gus Edwards... Anywhere from round 15 onwards, I'll be drafting a lot of him. I mean, the best stat here is 10.4 touches per game. Yeah. Round 15, 18, you get 10 touches. That's that's <laughs> money, man. That's that's a, that's one of those coaches. That's a Jerry McKinnon type of thing. You know, you get 10 touches. That's great. I don't care who it is, uh, as long as it's not in my first 12 rounds, you know. So, <laughs> I guess I would just steal around 17. <laughs> 
Round 18, last round of consistently drafted guys. And, of course, there's a bit of flux with the guys who are in here, but I just took it underdogs, last 12 drafted guys. Uh, so we had Devin Duvernay, Marcus Mariota, Joshua Kelly, David Bell, Zach Moss, Nick Westbrook-Akine, Kenny Pickett, Zach Wilson, Kendrick Bourne, Dennis Johnson, Jeff Wilson, and Randall Cobb. So here... I mean, this is real dart throw territory. If you're getting a positive advance rate out of anyone here, you're doing good. You can see that there's a few players in that zone. Then in terms of fantasy points over expected, even there we got some, but the quarterbacks really stunk it up a lot. Kenny Pickett had a 1.7% touchdown rate, which was the league worst. No games with two passing touchdowns, and he could be a bit of a value going into 2023. Are you in on this Steelers offense to make a step forward? I will be in on the I'll be in on the weapons, not necessarily the quarterback. This reminds me very much of my take that I had with Trey Lance. That's hey, I like the weapons. I just I don't know if I like the quarterback too much because I don't think he's gonna consistently do either or. The one upside is that we know that Pickett's not really a running guy, so we know that he's just gonna pass the ball a lot. What does that mean? I'm just gonna look for value. I, I will take Pickens. I'll take Deontay. I'll take Najee Harris. I'll take Pat Fryermuth, uh, but I'm not going to stack the quarterback. And I think that sounds weird for a lot of people, but these one-off weapons are amazing. And I look at like Brandon Ayuk as a prime example of a, I just took the weapon. I don't need to take the team. Yeah. So I think that if you fall in love with one of those guys, uh, take the weapon, don't take the quarterback. I don't see much upside. This guy is not a 300-yard guy. That's not as far as I can see. Yeah, I think that's part of a really good, bigger best ball question that we can talk about at some point where it's, you know, Stacking players simply because they're from the same team doesn't always have that upside. I mean, Zach Wilson, we saw Garrett Wilson have a great season, but Zach Wilson absolutely stunk. Like QB 37, 30% completion rate when pressured. Worst PFF grade of any starting quarterback and the seventh worst passing EPA. And it was just a case where I don't think anybody necessarily expected him to regress quite so heavily. I think we the reason his ADP was quite this low was because he was coming into the season injured. Before that, we were taking him several rounds earlier. And it felt like, okay, there are enough offensive weapons around him that maybe he can be all right. But beyond all else, he lost the dressing room and had an absolute stinker of the season. And now it'd just be a surprise if he's ever really drafted again. I, I like the loss of dressing room. I think that's that's my new term for that now. I'm going to stick with that forever. That's the best that you can ever say. Um <laughs> I mean, Zach Wilson just proved that he wasn't good. Um, this is the complete opposite of the Sam Darnold, right? When Sam Darnold didn't have any weapons, didn't have a line, didn't have running back. I think he's done. I think that he's done. I think that if, but anyone that took Zach Wilson, you know, came into you know, Felix. I love you, man. I know he took a lot of Zach Wilson. I think it's, I think it's a smart move. Let's let's be real, right? Corey Davis was his worst receiver on that offense. Coming into the year, that was your wide receiver three. That is amazing. right? People talk about the Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd. Corey Davis is better, I think, for fantasy and probably even real life than what Tyler Boyd does. From a, you know, like So you got Corey Davis as your wide receiver three. You got Brees Hall. You got you know their other running back, Michael Carter. Like, you got all these guys. It's, it's surprising that he didn't perform well. And that just shows that it doesn't always happen. You know, year two, you don't actually get better. But anyone that drafted him, I don't blame him. This is yeah. that offense on paper looked immaculate. 
Yeah, and and at given cost, where we were closing value of like looking at round eighteen, it's round just fifteen to you eighteen know, would have mattered. I think yeah. this is the Jared Goff situation. Hey, your line's a little bit better. You have great weapons. I hope you can throw three hundred yard games. And we were looking at this. Okay, well, Joe Flacco was going to start the season. There were plenty of upside arguments where Zach Wilson came in, and even if his play was as bad as it was, I strongly believe that if he hadn't have completely lost faith of the coaches and the players around him. They would have kept playing him simply because of where his drafts capital was. And he could have easily kept giving you a few usable weeks. Uh, one player who was, you know, more cheerful things that I'd like to say, Jeff Wilson Jr., nine top 30 performances. And four of those came with the 49ers before he was traded to the Dolphins. Looking back now, it feels like people expected too much from Tyrion Davis-Price, who the word throughout camp was that he wasn't particularly high up on the depth chart. And Jeff Wilson was the player who we should have been drafting higher. As a Dolphins fan, how do you feel about Jeff Wilson? Uh, funny. So I'm in, I'm in San Francisco. You guys know this. Um, the funny thing about him from the San Francisco side, they love Jeff Wilson Jr. They liked him more than TDB. They... And anyone that liked Elijah Mitchell knew that Elijah Mitchell has an injury of history, a history of being injured. Jeff Wilson Jr. was a great pick no matter what happened. Whether he went to the Dolphins, which we cannot predict, but uh, from that side of things, he was great. You already knew that he was going to have a role on the 49ers, and then he went to the Dolphins, same thing. He was going to have a role there. I think next year he's going to go underpriced. I, I, he should be a guy that's between round 10s to 12. Uh, as long as we don't draft like somebody in the first two rounds, I think he's around ten to twelve guy, uh, and I know he's gonna be great. Nine top thirty performances, you know, fourth to 49ers. That's amazing. That's as good as it gets. And, and he's young. He's way younger than Raheem Mostert. Yeah, and he's and they just, trust he's... him more than they trust. They trust Mostert a lot, but when he was Jeff Wilson came there, he took the job almost immediately. And he's an explosive player. I like taking bets on explosive players. So that's kind of rounds out round 18. And we'll crack on with a few undrafted players in a minute. But here we can see the sort of the advance rates across the six rounds. And so really any round where you were getting more than three positive advance rates was a really solid round. You can see round uh, 15 in particular looked really good. But let's just touch on some of those undrafted players who kind of stand out in hindsight. So we've got here Latavius Murray, Juwan Johnson, Jimmy Garoppolo, Darius Slayton, Will Fuller, and Geno Smith. And just quickly, Latavius Murray, he was somebody coming off a pretty good season for the Ravens. He'd looked really good at times. I mean, you know, Lev Bell got cut because Latavius Murray was clearly a better player. He came in and took the job from Melvin Gordon, and he was top 36 running back in every game this season. Juwan Johnson... Third most uh, touchdowns at the position. He had seven. He feels like somebody who his ADP could get out of hand next year. How high would be too high for you to draft Jerron Johnson in 2023? Anything above around 16, I want to say, around 16, 15. We don't know the quarterback situation. We don't know their coaching situation. Realistically, we don't. Who, who knows what that team's going to do? Um, but I, if he was better i think Taysom hill would be a lot worse for fantasy and i think that the fact that Taysom hill is so relevant kind of just makes me not trust juan johnson anything about round 15 is where i ended at 
Yeah, 37% of his points came from touchdowns. Jimmy G, obviously we spent the entire offseason drafting, thinking that Trey Lance would be the starter until he either got injured or unless he lost the job. And then he lost the job after two weeks when he dislocated his ankle. So Jimmy G, he wasn't good for fantasy, though. Anybody who was heavily exposed to Jimmy G and counting on him to be fantasy relevant... He was the QB 19 in points per game. He had four top 12 weeks, but only one 20-point game. When Brock Purdy came in, he was QB 12 across his starts for the rest of the season. So Brock Purdy showed us that quarterbacks can be fantasy relevant in this system, but Jimmy wasn't. Is there a particular team where you can imagine Jimmy going to next year where you'll want to draft a lot of him? None. Not not one single team in the NFL where I would take him. Um and that doesn't mean that I believe Jimmy G is bad. I actually think Jimmy G is a very competent quarterback, but he just doesn't have a deep ball. He any team that's taking him most likely is going to put him into some running style type of scheme, where he's a game manager, you know, Colts type of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't I, see it. I, 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 think, I don't see a situation where he throws three touchdowns consistently. Well, one of my issues with Jimmy G has always been like the lack of touchdowns for George Kittle. George Kittle, we know, is an incredible talent, but we saw it with Brock Purdy. George Kittle's uh, career highs and touchdowns this year and red zone uh, targets simply because Brock Purdy was there and just absolutely latching onto him in the red zone, knowing that he can go up and just beat defenders. But Jimmy G never did that. Darius Slayton, he had seven top, 30, seven top 36 weeks. There's a wide receiver three each of those weeks. Slots nicely into your flex. Average 55 yards per game. All off-season, we kept hearing about how the Giants wanted to cut him, but they couldn't really move him on for anything. In hindsight, it doesn't really feel like we missed on this one because we didn't know that Kenny Golladay was going to be atrocious. We didn't know Sterling Shepard was going to get injured. So, Do you think that Darius Slayton is somebody you would like to draft going forward next year? Um, as someone that didn't take any of them this year, I will admit that I... I had um, I had a very anti Slayton, a very anti Slayton. But for basketball purposes, I will take him next year, and I should have taken him this year. If you ever look at the the Giants roster from this year, you know he was at least the wide receiver on this team, give give or take, right? Like Kadarius Tony was often on injured, Kenny G was often on injured, Sterling Shepard was often on injured, and there was no scenario where all three of those guys were playing at the same time. I just I just don't see the scenario coming into the year going. Who is their wide receiver three? And it should have always been the answer is Darius Slate, who is the healthiest guy on that team at the time, who is also the deep threat for that team. I, I think we got that wrong. I think if I had to redo it, I think signing a ton of Dar- I, Darius Slate would have been the move. Yeah. Uh, and I think I, next year will be the same situation. I think Darius Slate, if he's still on this team, you know, Richie James Jr., Isaiah Hodgett, whoever they draft, I think Darius Slate finds himself to be that deep threat and as long as he gets you contribution weeks i don't think it matters uh how often they come but you cannot tell me that if Darius Slade's on the field for all the snaps that you don't believe that he's going to provide some fantasy relevance yeah one player who had absolutely zero fantasy relevance will fuller i've got here is underdog average adp from across the whole of last offseason may through to september from my friends at wrote of this here and I didn't draft any round 18 Will Fuller because I was drafting Will Fuller in kind of round 12, round 13, and I was going, 
Well, we know what Will Fuller is. When Will Fuller's healthy, Will Fuller is going to give us big fantasy weeks. And I don't care at this cost whether he's injured at times because when he's healthy, he's going to be great. But as it happens, I mean, Will Fuller has just, you know, completely disappeared off the face of the planet. Was Will Fuller somebody you drafted a lot of, Davis? No, 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 no. I'm not a Will Fuller guy. Uh, I, I bit the bullet one year, and that was last year. I mean, he went to the Dolphins. I was like, oh, you know, he actually might be the best receiver on our team. He's going to put up. God, he played, what, five snaps or something, and it just never came back? Like two receptions? I think I was at that game that he just left and never came back. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was so bad. And I remember just going, like, I knew it. I should, I should have seen it. You know, injury prone's a thing. Um, I I think William Fuller, you know, Will Fuller, how he was, Will I Am Fuller is what I'm starting calling him. I just, <laughs> he's someone I just cannot draft. I don't think, I think anyone that was drafted him in August, even July, I think you were just just chasing a pipe dream. There's no there at this point. What is he? What was he going to do? You know, he's already you know he got busted for steroid usage. Can't stay on the field. I yeah. I the reason I wanted him on this list too is just I I want people to remember that you your 18th round picks, your undrafted picks. These guys do actually matter. And we listed a bunch of guys right now that end up panning out. Um, and Will and Fuller, who wasn't even on the team, are the same guys that took Gronk, are the same guys that took just these guys that were, hey, maybe he comes back and helps win this season. Like, no, they didn't. So I just really like to keep that pointed out. If they're not on a team by mid-July to early August, like, just move on. Like, do not waste your picks. Those those picks matter down the road. Yeah. I think hitting on your late-round picks particularly is such an important part. And, it's why I kind of tend to preach spreading out your exposure, particularly at this end of the draft. It can really matter because one player who I didn't have anywhere near enough of was Geno Smith finished as the QBA on the season, 10 top 12 performances, only five games below 16 points. And we saw across the early point of the season, he was absolutely dominating in efficiency metrics. He didn't manage to keep that going the whole year, but the bar he set at the start of the season was so incredibly high and, I just look back now and I think, okay, of course he was going to beat Drew Lockout. Like, we'd seen Gino play there when he played in a few games for Russell Wilson the previous season. And that standard was clearly higher than Drew Locke. Yeah, Gino Smith, definitely one of my biggest misses of this year. Major miss on my part. I, I didn't believe in Gino Smith. Um, and like I said, this compares to the Will Fuller situation. Like, this guy has a job. Quarterback is the easiest position to get some contribution out of, right? The fact if you can't contribute that, it just it just means that you weren't fancy relevant at all. So I I think that someone like Geno Smith, Samaji P. Ryan, any of these other guys that you could have taken make way more sense than taking Will Fuller. Um, so you know, props to Geno Smith for having a great year. I wasn't sold on him. I didn't believe that there was enough for him to be fantasy relevant, and I think we saw some of his weeks kind of fall off at times. He's very minimalistic. But um, he great. He made he made gave us Tyler Lock and DK Metcalf at a an overall good value. Yeah. Okay. That'll do it for this. That is all eighteen rounds and some of the undrafted players that we've got through. Davis, thanks so much for joining me tonight. You should be following Davis at Peng's Picks FF on Twitter. Like I said at the top of the show, absolutely one of the brightest minds when it comes to best ball. A real stud in the draft streets and somebody that I rely on a lot. 
Davis, have you got anything coming up that you'd like to plug? Uh, you know, we're actually making a new intro for Fantasy Six Pack, so that actually should release today. They're doing their baseball pod this year, so uh, so they're so we can see that intro, which is gonna be pretty cool. Created by myself and a couple of help from other friends for graphics. Uh, I'll be doing my articles for Stochastic and F6P again this year, uh, and my rankings. And then I'll probably finish up my articles that I wanted to finish up last year, which will be um, the, the importance of three tight end and why it matters. And then at the same time, a new best ball guide from a different standpoint. Hopefully not to mimic anyone else's that's currently online, but I'm doing another best ball guide that I made four years ago. I'm going to redo it again this year. Brilliant. That sounds fantastic. Okay, please like and subscribe before you get out of here and keep an eye on the channel. We've got a lot of big Dynasty contents coming soon. We'll be diving into early best ball drafts, looking at the ADP, seeing who's a value, seeing who stinks. And the season, it's just getting started. Mm-hmm.